grace, mercy, and peace are yours through the Triune God. Whether you're listening from far away or next to beautiful Seneca Lake, we hope that through the reading and proclaiming of Scripture, you hear God's wisdom, challenge, and blessing for you today. If you're able to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m., we at Hector Presbyterian Church would love to share Christ's peace with you. Ben gave me all the hard words today, so bear with me. A reading from the letter from Philomenon, from Paul, who was a prisoner for the cause of Christ Jesus and our brother Timothy. To Philomenon, our dearly loved co-worker, Aphia, our sister, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church that meets in your house. May the grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Though I have enough confidence in Christ to command you to do the right thing, I would rather appeal to you through love. I, Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner for Jesus Christ, appeal to you for my child, Onesimus. I became his father in the faith during my time in prison. He was useless to you before, but now he is useful to us both. I'm sending him back to you, which is like sending you my own heart. I considered keeping him with me so that he might serve me in your place during my time in prison because of the gospel. However, I didn't want to do anything without your consent, so that your act of kindness will occur willingly and not under pressure. Maybe this is the reason Onesimus was separated from you for a while so you might have him back forever. No longer a slave, but more than a slave. That is, as dearly loved brother. He is especially a dearly loved brother to me. How much more can he become a brother to you, personally and spiritually in the Lord? So if you really consider me a partner, welcome Onesimus as if you were welcoming me. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. A reading from the first scroll of Samuel. Jonathan's life became bound up with David's life, and Jonathan loved David as much as himself. From that point forward, Saul kept David in his service and wouldn't allow him to return to his father's household. Jonathan and David made a covenant together because Jonathan loved David as much as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his armor, as well as his sword, his bow, and his belt. David went out and was successful in every mission Saul sent him to do. So Saul placed him in charge of the soldiers. And this pleased all the troops, as well as Paul's servants. After David came back from killing Philistine, and the troops returned home, 
Women from all of Israel's towns came out to meet King Saul and with singing and dancing and tambourines, rejoicing and musical instruments. The women sang in celebration. Saul has killed thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. Saul burned with anger. The song annoyed him. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he said, but only credited me with thousands? What's next for him? The kingdom itself? So Saul kept a close eye on David from that point on. The next day, an evil spirit from God came over Saul. He acted as though he was in a prophetic frenzy in his house. So David played the liar as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand and he threw it, thinking, I'll pin David to the wall. But David escaped from him two different times. When David came to Jonathan and asked, what have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he wants me dead? Jonathan said to him, no, you're not going to die. Listen, my father doesn't do anything big or small without telling me first. Why would my father hide this from me? It isn't true. But David solemnly promised in response, your father knows full well that you like me. He probably said, Jonathan must not learn about this or he'll be upset. But I promise you, on the Holy One's life and yours, that I am this close to death. Then Jonathan told David, I pledge by the Holy God of Israel that I will question my father by this time tomorrow or on the third day. If he seems favorable towards David, I will definitely send word and make sure you know. But if my father intends to harm you, then may the Holy One deal harshly with me, Jonathan, and worse still if I don't tell you right away so that you can escape safely. May the Holy One be with you as God once was with my father. If I remain alive, be loyal to me. But if I die, don't ever stop being loyal to my household. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When way up the hill you hurried, why did you leave me in despair? Or when we parted for good and became alien, oh, how I had drowned in the Barrow River. 14-year-old Astergano hummed this song from her homeland as she worked. Born in the western region of Ethiopia, she grew up singing these words at weddings. When slavers captured her and sold her into bondage, the tune kept her company. Liberated by Italians, taken in and taught by pious Swedes on the Eritrean coast, Astaire might have done nothing more with this song except reminisce with other formerly enslaved Ethiopians. But instead, 
She changed the course of history. She wrote the song down. Noting her natural knack for languages, the Swedish Lutherans who ran the missionary school in Masawa gave this teenager a daunting task to create a dictionary in her native language, Oromo. This was 1886. Auster took to the work with gusto, creating a 15,000 word dictionary and a collection of 500 songs, tales, riddles, and proverbs, all set down from memory. A contemporary described her this way. With her pencil in hand, Austere finds all the words which can be deduced from one basic root. Although she is young, she is unusually steady and has a genuine character. Her face bears evidence of intelligence and energy. She looks so learned and skillful that even in the beginning, I had due respect for her being ashamed of my poor language. Imagine Austere slipping that pencil behind her ear and looking up at this contemporary, a man almost twice her age, her colleague and her friend. He was ethnically a Romo like her and had also been captured and sold into slavery before winding up with the Swedes in Masawa. Although his parents named him Hika, at baptism, he took a new name, chosen from scripture, Onesimus. Together, Aster and Onesimus would translate the Bible into their native language, essentially birthing the canon of Oromo literature. Their friendship changed the way a whole people perceived themselves and the world around them. The Onesimus from scripture also had an impact on history, bearing a letter from the Apostle Paul written in prison. Only 25 verses long, the letter to Philemon was the center of a centuries-long debate about the morality of enslaving human beings. Leading up to the Civil War, pro-slavery Christians would cite Onesimus' obedient return as justification for that cruel and peculiar institution. Whereas abolitionist Christians insisted that Paul's request that Philemon accept his debt slave as a brother necessarily meant freedom. A century and a half later, we have a better guess at what was going on in Paul's world. Whereas once it was accepted fact that Onesimus had run away, it's more likely that Philemon sent his enslaved worker 
to look after Paul in prison. There were no cafeterias and ancient jail cells after all. Prisoners relied on family and friends for food. And so Paul writes of Onesimus, I considered keeping him with me so that he might serve me in your place during my time in prison. However, I didn't want to do anything without your consent. So no, it's not surprising that Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon. What is surprising is that Paul expects Philemon to change. Dear Philemon, welcome Onesimus as if you were welcoming me. Receive him no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, that is, a dearly loved brother. Take the established social order that places free people over enslaved people and just toss it aside. Paul, you expect Philemon to change? Good luck. People don't change. Just ask the Oromos, once regularly enslaved, oppressed by the Ethiopian elite, and now instigators in a civil war. Or just ask the descendants of enslaved Africans in the U.S. who will point out that our newest federal holiday, Juneteenth, yesterday, celebrating emancipation, was signed into law against the backdrop of laws that limit discussions of racism in schools. Just ask your family members, do people change? They might be using smartphones, but all of us are operating with the emotional software that was installed in childhood. People don't change, Paul. People cling, like King Saul clinging to resentment threatened by David's apparent popularity. Now that's a story that makes sense. Because who among us has never compared themselves to another? Uh, all of us have at some point measured ourselves against the competition and found ourselves lacking. And though we've exchanged our models of mental distress, so evil spirits sent by God are out, brain chemicals and trauma are in, even then, I recognize Saul's frenzy. He's acting as though he is possessed. There are moments I have felt possessed possessed by anxiety, by guilt, by rage. And while you've probably never flung a spear at someone, probably, you're familiar with razor-sharp glances, aren't you? And with looks that could kill. Clinging makes sense. Change doesn't. 
And so our eyes are on Saul, waiting for him to go too far and to try to kill David. Our eyes are on Philemon, reading aloud Paul's letter, likely in the company of Apphia, Archippus, and the church that meets in their home. Surely, he won't treat Onesimus the slave, Onesimus the debtor, as an equal, right? It's hard to believe that Saul or Philemon or even Paul himself would change of their own will. But our sacred story makes it harder to believe that God is not moving in the world to transform the way that we see and hear and talk to each other. We have glimpsed God at work in David's story so far. The prophet Samuel heard the still small voice whispering, God doesn't look at things like humans do. Humans see only what is visible to the eyes, but the Holy One sees into the heart. And it is in the name of the Holy One in the name of the Holy One that the tide turns in the battle against the Philistine army, not by the might of sword and spear. And now again, witness the God whose power is made perfect in weakness. Move the king's son to embrace vulnerability, giving David his sword bow and belt. And again, notice the God whose wisdom sounds like foolishness, moving through Jonathan, who sets aside his image of his father in order to listen to David. And read ahead how Jonathan will realize that it is safer by Saul's side safer than in the crosshairs with David. And yet, he will risk that security to help David escape, to save his own heart walking around in another person's body. Love does that. And where love is, there God abides. And look even further, after the civil war, after Jonathan dies in battle, after David takes Jerusalem and is crowned king, there is God stirring in David's heart, reminding him of a request, beloved Jonathan made years ago, if I die, Don't ever stop being loyal to my household. And because God never stops searching out new possibilities, David seeks and finds the one remaining child of Jonathan. And for the rest of his days, this son, 
Mephibosheth will eat at David's table. The same God who conspired between Oromo exiles, the same God who bound two would-be rivals in covenant love, that God moves even among the church meeting in Apphia's house. Even when unquestioned social arrangements like slavery are on the line, the Holy One can still surprise us. After all, the waters of baptism have dissolved the foundations we thought were so sure. For in Christ Jesus, there is no longer male and female, Jew nor Greek, enslaved nor free. What's left in the wake of this baptismal flood? Love. A dearly loved brother stands where the debt slave was standing. A dearly loved sister with purple hair and a sleeve of tattoos is sitting across from you. Parents are no longer parents. Children are no longer children. All are siblings in Christ, whatever their age. We are keenly aware of age, I think. A handful of conversations I've had in the last couple weeks have acknowledged that the old Hector has gone the way of Wickham's store and Bond's fruit stand. I'm not quite sure what the old Hector is, but I think that it's shorthand for what is familiar, a place where folks knew where they stood in the world, whether or not that standing was actually true. But I'm reassured that regardless of the era, God is still inviting us to befriend the possibilities in each person, in each neighbor, in this beloved corner of creation. The new Hector, if you want to call it that, has its own social rules, its own easy ideas for people to cling to, and its own need for world-changing, risky love. Thankfully, God's grace is enough for us to reach beyond anxiety, beyond expectation, to grasp our neighbor's hands. Friends, for such transforming grace. Let us give all our gratitude and glory to God. The song of the psalmists, the strength of the lowly, sovereign and shepherd of all. Amen.